Running through the pouring rain on the cobbled streets, you stop and take shelter for a moment. The stench was overpowering. Waste, feces and slaughter flowed down the cobbles helped along by the heavy rain. Rats scurry past your feet. Sighing, you head back into the soaked streets. You enter your home and it's damp and cold. You're soaked to the bone. Taking off the wet clothes, you shiver with the cold. For days now, your muscles have ached, but you think it's just the weather. Gathering logs that aren't damp, you manage to light a small fire in the fireplace. Grabbing the heaviest blanket you have, you sit by the fire, trying to warm your bones. Lifting your palms to take in the heat, you notice a black tint on your fingertips. Must be from the soot, you think, but it wasn't. This was the great plague of London, and this is the good, the bad, and the pure evil. The plague in London, like most of Europe, was an endemic in the 17th century meaning the infection was maintained as a baseline level in geographic area. So to give an idea, let's say chickenpox, it would be an endemic to the UK or Ireland, but malaria isn't in these areas. So the plague would now and then spike huge epidemics. In 1603, 30,000 died from the plague. In 1635, 35,000 died from the plague. And in 1636, it dropped to 10,000 dying from the plague. In 1664, a bright comet came into the sky over London. Back then, people were very superstitious and feared the unknown. So this big ball of what they said was fire sent fear into the people of London as to what evil was coming. London at the time was a walled city. The wall was to keep raiders out. Huge gates were in the wall, and the Thames was crossed by the London Bridge. Like all big cities, even back then, there were poor areas. Overcrowding in these areas was a huge issue, and hygiene couldn't be achieved. Sanitation was zero, open drains flowed in the centre of the streets. Cobbles were damp, slippery, with animal faeces from house rubbish and leftovers were thrown onto the streets. They were muddy in winter and covered in flies during the summer. To clean up such a filth, rakers were employed by the city corporation. These rakers took the filth, dumping it outside the walls, where it continued to decompose. The smell was horrific. People walked with cloths, tissues, even small bouquets of flowers against their nose. Coal came mainly by road and was a necessity at the time. Carts, carriages, horses, people all crowded together in the city causing blockage at the gate. Even the 19-inch arch at London Bridge was always bottlenecked. Those with money avoided the filth using hackney carriages. The poor though, they walked. They were drenched by water, kicked up by the wheel transport. Slops thrown into the streets hit them, and water rained down on them from overhanging roofs. 
smoke, black tick smoke smothered the area from soap factories, breweries, and from at least 15,000 homes burning coal to heat themselves and their family. Beyond the walls sat shanty towns, little wooden shacks with no sanitation. These homes, if you'd call them that, belonged to craftsmen and tradesmen who came to the city. The government tried to limit these shacks popping up, but failed to do so. In no time, nearly 250,000 people lived in the shanty town outside the wall. The Commonwealth would see royalists fleeing the country, leaving grand houses emptied. Those who came to London after began crowding into these empty homes, soon becoming tenant housing for families, sometimes large in every room. Soon these once fine houses were neglected, vandalised and rat-infested slums. The City of London itself was ruled by the Lord Mayor, the Aldermen and the Common Councillors, but some parts were not legally part of the city. These areas were outside and inside the walls and were organised into districts called Liberties. These liberties were a law unto themselves, granted rights to self-government. Come the time of 1665, the walled city was surrounded by liberties. They would fall under its authority, soon becoming the city and liberties. This area was then surrounded by more suburbs. Depending where you were would depend what authority you were under. North of the river put you under Middlesex and site you are under Surrey. At the time, little was known about the bubonic plague, making it massively feared. Being not as medically advanced as today, they looked more towards the surroundings as cause. Like unusual weather, sick animals, animals acting strange, or religious plague animals like frogs, mice, or flies. In 1894, Alexandra Yersin would identify the aged bacterium Yersinia pestis and that it was transmitted by rat fleas. This was over 150 years after the Great Plague of London, but it was always thought the plague was bubonic. This would eventually be confirmed in 2016 by DNA analysis. So to know the severity of an epidemic, any academic, you need to know how much the population was. Now for the time 1600s, there isn't an official census to give such a figure. So figures for this time and area come from John Grant, believed to be the first epidemiologist. He was an early fellows of the Royal Society, bringing a medical and scientific approach to the collection of statistics. John estimated that in 1662, there was 384,000 people living in the city of London, Liberties, Westminster and other parishes. This number came from the weekly bills of mortality published in the capital. In 1665, John changed it to 460,000 people. Publishing bills of mortality was a lengthy process and not very accurate. You see, you didn't have to report the dead. So parishes appointed searchers of the dead usually women who were poor, old, 
couldn't read with little knowledge of the plague. They would learn of deaths from local Saxons who dug graves or from the tolling of church bells. They were often bribed to not give the cause of death. Those who didn't report to the church, like Quakers, Jews or non-angelic Christians, didn't get included in the records. In the plague times, searchers lived outside the community, staying away from people. When they came into the area, they came carrying a white stick, warning of who they were. They stayed indoors unless doing searches. This was to avoid spreading disease. Searchers reported to the parish clerks. They then went weekly to the company of parish clerks in Broad Lane. These figures were passed to the Lord Mayor and then on to the Ministry of State once the plague was a national concern. Their reported figures were used to make the bills of mortality, listing all dead in each parish. Searchers continued until 1836. By this time, a call for a better documented system was needed for births, marriages and deaths. John Grant wasn't very impressed with the searchers, particularly the majority of deaths were recorded as consumption rather than other diseases. He would suggest bribery was at the play. Doubling their fee and a cup of ale seemed to be the going rate to persuade a searcher. No one wanted to know a death in their home was by plague. Even the parish clerks covered up cases of plague in their official records. Looking at the bills of mortality during the plague, deaths went up well above average. Some were plagued, but others were recorded as other causes, although it's believed they were false. The plague would spread, a quarantine system was adopted, and this had any home with a person who died from the plague locked up for 40 days, no one in and no one out. This had a knock-on effect, those inside often died from neglect or from the plague of the corpse. So this fear of being locked away would have people not wanting to report the causes of death. Official return reports was 68,596, but this is to believe to be 30,000 short of the actual figure. Once a home was confirmed plague, a red cross was marked in the door, along with the wording, Lord have mercy upon us. A watchman would then appear standing guard outside the house. By the 1660s, word came to England about the plague in Europe. This brought about the idea to introduce steps to stop it getting to England. The quarantining or isolating of ships were used prior in outbreaks and thought to be the way to go. So they introduced it again in November 1663, once outbreaks happened in Amsterdam and Hamburg. Two naval ships would protect the Thames, intercepted any vessels that entered the Thames. Ships from affected ports had to be held at Canvey Island for 30 days before travelling upriver. Ships that came from ports with no plague completed isolation and were given a certificate of health and this allowed them to travel on. A second inspection line was set up at Tilbury and Gravesend. Only those with certificates could pass. As the plague got worse, the isolation and quarantine went up to 40 days in May 1664. With news of other areas being hit by the plague, the quarantine areas changed to include Holland, Zealand and Friesland. 
By the November, restrictions were removed in Hamburg. Ships coming from Dutch Republic were the next on the quarantine list. The Dutch ambassador wasn't happy, objecting that it was unfair to his country's trade. Restrictions were very strict. People or houses where voyagers came ashore with no quarantine being served had to do 40 days when they arrived. The plague would be one of the most many hazards of life in Britain, first seen in 1348 with the Black Death. The bills of mortality started publishing regularly in 1603, with 33,347 deaths recorded from the plague. From then until 1665, only four years recorded zero plague deaths. In 1563, over a thousand people were dying weekly in London. 1593, it stood at 15,003. 1625, it shot up to 41,313. From 1640 to 1646, 11,000 were recorded dead. Then, in 1647, it dropped back down to 3,597. The 1625 of 41,313 was recorded as the Great Plague until 1665, when the death toll reached a record high. But these figures are all believed to be much lower than the actual true figures. Doctors had little knowledge of the plague and probably no personal experience seeing the disease. Medical training also varied. You had those who attended college, which were the physicians, and those who acted like doctors, like apotheses or charlatans. Other diseases circulated at the time like smallpox, which broke out the year before. With all these uncertainties, it made it very difficult to see what was the actual start of the ep epidemic. Accounts suggest cause of plague came up winter 1664-1665. Some were fatal, but it didn't show the severity yet. That winter was cold, very cold. The ground froze, December until March, and the river froze blocking traffic on the Thames, twice by ice. With this freezing weather, it's believed to have back, held back the disease spread. The outbreak of the bubonic plague in England is thought to have come from the Netherlands, where the disease happened on and off since 1599. It's not known where the first contagion hit, but it's believed to have arrived on a Dutch ship with bales of cotton from Amsterdam, which was badly hit in 1663-1664, with deaths of 50,000. The first area hit was the docks outside London and in the parish of St Giles. These locations were in perfect condition for spreading disease, with poor workers crowded in badly kept structures. Two strange deaths were recorded in 1664 in St Giles, with a third in February 1665. The first four months of 1665 showed deaths increased in London. By April, only four recorded plague deaths were taken, with two in St Giles, but deaths in total went up from 290 to 398. Three official plague deaths were reported in April. This level, level wouldn't have caused concern previously, but this year the Privy Council 
Now start household quarantine. The Justice of the Peace were ordered to look into any suspected cases and board up the houses when a case was confirmed. This was ordered in Middlesex first, then a similar order by the King's Bench to the City of the Liberties. A riot erupted when the first house was boarded up. The crowd immediately ran up to the house, breaking down the door and freeing those inside. The crowd dispersed but some were captured and punished with brute force for interfering with the order. To try compromise on this matter, pest houses were built, which were a kind of isolation hospital. These were built away from the community and here the sick would be cared for or more so stay until their death. These approaches and orders were done with few record, recorded cases which would lead to the thinking the government knew this was a serious outbreak of the plague. The winter would pass and warmer weather came in, allowing the disease to take a tighter grip. May 2nd till 9th, three more recorded deaths in St Giles happened along with four in Clement, one in St Andrews and one in St Mary's. The last one in St Mary was the only one to happen inside the city walls. Methods were looked into how to stop the spreading of the plague. Closing alehouses in effective areas and limiting lodgers in a household was introduced. Within the walls, Lord Mayor issued an order to all households to clean the streets outside the home. If they didn't, the older men were ordered to find them and punish them. St Giles' cases started to increase more and more quarantines were instructed. Inspections of everyone wishing to travel or wanted inside lodgings, along with inspections of suspects. People started to become scared. Samuel Peps, a naval administrator, stayed in London and he would record the plague in his diary. On April 30th he entered, quote, Great fears of the sickness here in the city. It being said that two or three houses are already shut. God preserve us all, end quote. July 1665, the plague engulfed the city of London. The rich fled, including King Charles II, his family and the court. Aldermen and other city authorities chose to stay. The Lord Mayor of London also stayed. Businesses shut when owners ran. The plague raged on in the summer and only a few clergymen and physicians decided to stay to deal with the increasing number of victims. The poor were afraid. Some were able to leave, but it wasn't easy. They would have to leave their homes and livelihoods to go someplace new with no certainties. Before you could leave through the gates, you had to have a certificate of health signed by the Lord Mayor. These were like gold dust to obtain. Plague victims went up and up. Those outside London were beginning to get annoyed and no longer wanted to take in those from London with or without a certificate. The now refugees were being turned back, were being stopped passing through towns, making them forced to travel across the country. They had to live rough on items they stole or scavenged from fields. The summer that year was hot and many died of starvation and dehydration. 
End of July, the London Bill of Mortality had 3,000 deaths. 2,000 of them were from the plague. As the number of victims mounted up, burial grounds overflowed. Pits were dug to hold the dead. Dead carts would come through the streets yelling, bring out your dead. Bodies were piled into the carts and taken away. Those in charge didn't want to alarm the people, so the order of body removal only took place at night. Tables began to turn, and too many dead and too few cart drivers. So to remove the bodies, you had to stack them against the walls of the house. Daytime collection would happen. Plague pits were piles and piles of dead, rotten corpses. In Aldgate, a 50 by 20 foot hole was dug. Digging would continue one end, while the other end, dead carts came up one by one, tipping corpses in. When they couldn't extend wider, they went deeper, down 20 feet until they hit water. Finally, it was covered with soil and would hold over a thousand corpses. Doctors, known as plague doctors, walked the streets diagnosing victims, many of them with no formal medical training. Physicians were hired by the city officials and burial details were carefully planned out. But panic erupted in the city. Contagion was the top fear, so bodies were quickly buried in large pits. At first it wasn't known how the disease spread. A thought was linked to animals. With this thought, the city corporation ordered a cull on dogs and cats. This would have a ripple effect prolonging the epidemic as these animals could possibly reduce rats who were the ones carrying fleas that were transmitting the disease. Bad air was also considered a transmission. The authorities would have huge bonfires burning day and night in streets and homes in the hopes to clear the air. Tobacco was thought to be a preventative and it's said that no tobacconist in London died from the plague in the epidemic. Trade and business was no more. Streets were emptied of the living and only the dead carts and the dying wandered them. Food was limited and involved negotiations. When money was paid, the coins were dumped into a bucket of vinegar to try to disinfect it. Records would show deaths from the plague increased from 2,000 a week to 7,000 a week by September. Again, these figures are believed lower than the actual true number. Those who kept records like sextons and clerks also died, and Quakers wouldn't help. The poor were just dumped in unclaimed mass graves, which weren't recorded. Those who lived from the disease weren't recorded, and de- as the only deaths were recorded. And many of these records were destroyed in the Great Fire of London the year after. The records that did survive show plague deaths varied from 30 to 50%. By late autumn, deaths began to slow. In February 1666, it was considered safe enough for the king to return. And with this, confidence came and others began to come back. Judges moved back to sit in Westminster Hall. Trade started back up with businesses opening again. London was the place to be full of hope and money, many wanting to make their fortunes. Plague cases continued, but at a more controlled rate until mid-1666. But tragedy wasn't over. 
September, the Great Fire of London engulfed the city, and some believe that the fire put an end to the epidemic. But now it's thought by the time of the fire the plague had largely subsided. Most of the cases at the time of the fire were suburbs and not the city. The bills of mortality recorded 65,596 deaths in London were from the plague in 1665. The true number is thought to be twice that. In 1666, more deaths happened in other cities, but on a lesser scale. It's estimated the death toll of the plague from the country from 1665 to 1666 was about 200,000. The Great Plague of 1665 to 1666 was the last major outbreak of the bubonic plague in England. The last plague death that was recorded in 1679. After 1703, the bills of mortality removed the plague category. The west of England and Midlands appeared to have escaped it altogether. England's population in 1650 was about 5.2 million which went down to 4.9 million by 1680. By 1700 it was back up to 5 million. High death rates in cities were from travelling, mainly those coming from small towns or countryside to larger towns or cities. The plague in London largely affected the poor. Rich had the ability to flee to live with kin. The Great Fire of London would cause immense damage and London was largely rebuilt. The street plan remained the same, but with improvements. Streets were made wider, pavements were put in, open sewers were gone, and wooden buildings and overhanging gables prohibited. Using brick and stone was mandatory. All this made a healthier environment. A greater and closer community emerged. Rebuilding took about 10 years. In 2011 and 2015, 3,500 burials from Bethlehem were found during construction of the Cross Rail Railway. The Yersinia pestis, or plague DNA, was found in the deceased teeth, confirming they died of the bubonic plague. Thank you all for listening. Next time we'll be looking at the Jack the Ripper who terrorised London in 1888, killing at least five women, mutilating them in such a way it's believed he had strong knowledge of the human anatomy. He was never caught or identified, and to this day remains one of England's, even the world's famous killers. Until then, this was the good, the bad, and the pure evil.